Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochere. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. If you're a new friend, welcome. If you're a returning friend, thank you for your continued support. If you haven't already done so, please leave a rating at Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser, which will help more friends find the show. Please also consider becoming a financial supporter of the show via Patreon, for which you will receive my undying gratitude. You will also receive early access to episodes, whether you choose to contribute $1, $3, or $5 per month. For more info, click support at AmericanEpistles.com. Usually in an episode, I discuss a topic or event and include first-person narratives from several people who witnessed or experienced it. My next series that I'm researching is the Homestead Act, um, and specifically women homesteaders. It usually takes me a few months to research a series, but in the meantime, I'm sharing several episodes devoted to the life and letters of a single person, Eleanor Pruitt Rupert. In 1909, Rupert was working in Denver as a laundress and housekeeper for Juliet Coney, a widowed schoolteacher from Boston. Rupert moved from Denver to Wyoming to be a housekeeper for homesteader Clyde Stewart and to eventually become a homesteader herself. Her letters to Mrs. Coney were later published in the Atlantic Monthly. This is the third episode of the Rupert series. In episode two, Eleanor showed Mr. Stewart that she could mow hay as well as any man. Then, when Eleanor and daughter Jereen's explorations took a scary turn, a new friend named Zebulon Pike helped them find their way. Today, Eleanor makes more new friends, and Zebulon makes another appearance. I'll be reading three letters. November 22nd, 1909. My dear friend, I was dreadfully afraid that my last letter was too much for you, and now I feel plumb guilty. I really don't know how to write you, for I have to write so much and to say so little. And now that my last letter made you sick, I almost wish so many things didn't happen to me, for I always want to tell you. Many things have happened since I last wrote, and Zebulon Pike is not done for by any means, but I guess I will tell you my newest experience. I am making a wedding dress. Don't grin, it isn't mine. Worse luck. But I must begin at the beginning. Just after I wrote you before, there came a terrific storm which made me appreciate indoor coziness, but as only Baby and I were at home, I expected to be very lonely. The snow was just whirling when I saw someone pass the window. I opened the door and in came the dumpiest little woman and two daughters. She asked me if I was Ms. Rupert. I told her that she had almost guessed it, and then she introduced herself. She said she was Miss Lane that she had heard there was a new stranger in the country, so she had brought her twin girls, Sedalia and Regalia, to be neighborly. While they were taking off their many coats and wraps, it came out that they were from Linwood, thirty miles away. I was powerful glad I had a pot roast and some baked beans. After we had put the horses in the barn, we had dinner, and I heard the story of the girls' odd names. The mother is one of those comfy, fat little women, who remain happy and bubbling with fun in spite of hard knocks. I had, already I had already fallen in love with Regalia. She is so jolly and unaffected, so fat and so plain. 
Sedalia has a veneer of most uncomfortable refinement. She was shocked because Gail ate all the pot roast she wanted, and if I had been very sensitive, I would have been in tears, because I ate a helping more than Gail did. But about the names. It seems that Miss Lane, married quite young, was an orphan, and had no one to tell her things she should have known. She lived in Missouri, but about a year after her marriage, the young couple started overland for the West. It was in November, and one night, when they had reached the plains, a real blue blizzard struck them. Miss Lane had been in pain all day, and soon she knew what was the matter. They were alone, and it was a day's travel back to the last house. The team had given out, and the wind and sleet were seeing which could do the most meanness. At last the poor man got a fire started, and a wagon sheet stretched in such a manner that it kept off the sleet. He fixed a bed under the poor shelter, and did all he could to keep the fire from blowing away. And there, a few hours later, a little girl baby was born. They melted sleet in the frying pan to get water to wash it. Miss Lane kept feeling no better fast, and about the time they got the poor baby dressed, a second little one came. That she told me herself is proof she didn't die, I guess, but it is right hard to believe she didn't. Luckily, the fire lasted until the babies were dressed and the mother began to feel better, for there was no wood. Soon, the wind stopped and the snow fell steadily. It was warmer, and the whole family snuggled up under the wagon sheet and slept. Mr. Lane is a powerful good husband. He waited two whole days for his wife to gain strength before he resumed the journey, and on the third morning he actually carried her to the wagon. Just think of it. Could more be asked of any man? Every turn of the wheels made poor Miss Lane homesick. Like Mrs. Wiggs of the Cabbage Patch, she had a taste for geographical names, and Miss Lane is very loyal, so she wanted to call the firstborn Missouri. Mr. Lane said she might, but that if, he, if she did, he would call the other one Arkansas. Sometimes homesickness would almost master her. She would hug up the little red baby and murmur, Missouri and then Daddy would growl playfully to Arkansas. It went on that way for a long time, and at last she remembered that Sedalia was in Missouri. So she felt glad and really named the older baby Sedalia. But she could think of nothing to match the name, and was in constant fear the father would name the other baby Little Rock. For three years poor Gail was just the other one. Then the Lanes went to Green River, where some lodge was having a parade. They were watching the drill when a bystander that was standing by said something about the fine regalia. Instantly, Miss Lane thought of her unnamed child. So, since that time, Gail has had a name. There could be no two people more unlike than the sisters. Sedalia is really handsome, and she is thin. But she is vain, selfish, shallow, and conceited. Gail is not even pretty, but she is clean and she is honest. She does many little things that are not exactly polite, but she is good and true. They both went to the barn with me to milk. Gail tucked up her skirts and helped me. She said, I just love a stable, with its hay and comfortable, contented cattle. I never go into one without thinking of the little baby Christ. I almost expect to see a little red baby in the straw every time I peek into a manger. Sedalia answered, Well, for heaven's sake, get out of the stable to preach. 
Who wants to stand among these smelly cows all day? They stayed with us almost a week, and one day, when Gail and I were milking, she asked me to invite her to stay with me for a month. She said to ask her mother, and left her mother and myself much together. But Sedalia stuck to her mother like a plaster, and I just could not stand Sedalia a whole month. However, I was spared all embarrassment, for Miss Lane asked me if I could not find work enough to keep Gail busy for a month or so. She went on to explain that Sedalia was expecting to be married, and that Gail was so common she would really spoil the match. I was surprised and indignant, especially as Sedalia sat and listened so brazenly, so I said I thought Sedalia would need all the help she could get to get married, and that I should be glad to have Gail visit me as long as she liked. So Gail stayed on with me. One afternoon she had gone to the post office when I saw Mr. Patterson ride up. He went into the bunkhouse to wait until the men should come. Now, from something Gail had said, I fancied that Bob Patterson must be the right man. I am afraid I am not very delicate about that kind of meddling, and while I had been given to understand that Patterson was the man Sedalia expected to marry, I didn't think any man would choose her if he could get Gail, so I called him. We had a long chat, and he told me frankly he wanted Gail, but that she didn't care for him, and that they kept throwing that danged Sedalia at him. Then he begged my pardon for saying danged, but I told him I approved of the word when applied to Sedalia, and broke the news to him that Gail was staying with me. He fairly beamed. So that night I left Gail to wash dishes, and Bob to help her, while I held Mr. Stewart a prisoner in the stable, and questioned him regarding Mr. Patterson's prospects and habits. I found both all that need be, and told Mr. Stewart about my talk with with Patterson, and he said, Woman, some day ye'll gang plume daft. But he admitted he was glad it was the bonny lassie instead of the bony one. When we went to the house, Mr. Stewart said, Weel, when are you douchey bairns ganging to the kirk? They left it to me, so I set Thanksgiving Day, and there is no kirk to gang to. We are going to have a justice of the peace, and they are going to be married here. We are going to have the dandiest dinner that I can cook, and Mr. Stewart went to town next day for the wedding dress, the gayest plaid outside Caledonia. But Gail has lots of sense and is going to wear it. I have it almost finished, and while it doesn't look like a worth model, still it looks plumb good for me to have made. The boys are going up after Zebulon Pike, and Mr. Stewart is going after Miss Lane. Joy waves are radiating from this ranch, and about Thanksgiving morning one will strike you. With lots of love and happy wishes, your ex-wash lady, Eleanor Rupert. Dear Mrs. Coney, I think everyone enjoyed our Thanksgiving program except poor Gail. She was grieved, I verily believe, because Mr. Patterson is not Mormon and could not take Sedalia and herself also. I suppose it seemed odd to her to be unable to give way to Sedalia as she had always done. I had cooked and cooked. Gail and Zebulon Pike both helped all they could. The wedding was to be at twelve o'clock, so at ten I hustled Gail into my room to dress. I had to lock the door to keep her in, 
and I divided my time between the last touches to my dinner and the finishing touches to Gail's toilet and receiving the people. The lane party had not come yet, and I was scared to death lest Sedalia had had a tantrum and that Mr. Stewart would not get back in time. At last I left the people to take care of themselves, for I had too much on my mind to bother with them. Just after eleven, Mr. Stewart, Miss Lane, and Sedalia, and Paul Lane, arrived at once into the kitchen to warm. In a while, poor frightened Gail came creeping in, looking guilty. But she looked lovely, too, in spite of her plaid dress. She wore her hair in a coronet braid, which added dignity and height, as well as being simple and becoming. Her mother brought a wreath for her hair, of lilies of the valley and tiny pink rosebuds. It might seem a little out of place to one who didn't see it, but the effect was really charming. Sedalia didn't know that Mr. Stewart had given Gail her dress, so, just to be nasty, she said, as soon as she saw Gail, "'Dear me, when are you going to dress, Gail? You will hardly have time to get out of that horse blanket you are wearing to get and get into something decent.' You see, she thought it was one of my dresses fixed over for Gail. Presently, Sedalia asked me if I was invited to the function. She had some kind of rash on her face, and Zebulon Pike noticed the rash and heard the word function, so he thought that was the name of some disease and asked Mr. Stewart if the function was catching. Mr. Stewart had heard Sedalia, but knew Zebby had not heard all that was said and how he got the idea he had, so he answered, yes, if he wants get the fever. So Zebulon Pike privately warned everyone against getting the function from Sedalia. There are plenty of people here who don't know exactly what a function is, myself among them. So people edged away from Sedalia, and some asked her if she had seen the doctor and what he thought of her case. Poor girl, I'm afraid she didn't have a very enjoyable time. At last the justice of the peace came, and I hope they live happily ever afterward. That night a dance was given to celebrate the event, and we began to have dinner immediately after the wedding, so as to get through in time to start, for dances are never given in the home here, but in the hall. Every settlement has one, and the invitations are merely written announcements posted everywhere. We have what Sedalia calls homogenous crowds. I wouldn't attempt to say what she means, but as everyone goes out, no doubt she is right. Our dinner was a success, but that is not to be wondered at. Every woman for miles around contributed. Of course, we had to borrow dishes, but we couldn't think of seating everyone, so we set one table for twenty-four and had three other long tables, on one of which we placed all the meats, pickles, and sauces, on another the vegetables, soup, and coffee, and on the third the pie, cakes, ice cream, and other desserts. We had two big long shelves, one above the other, on which were the dishes. The people helped themselves the people helped themselves to the dishes, and neighbors took turns serving from the tables, so people got what they wanted and hunted themselves a place to sit while they ate. Two of the cowboys from this ranch waited upon the table at which were the wedding party and some of their friends. Boys from other ranches helped serve and carried coffee, cake, and ice cream. The tablecloths were, were tolerably good linen, and we had ironed them wet so they looked nice. We had white lace paper on the shelves, and we used drawn work paper napkins. As I said, we borrowed dishes, 
or that is, every woman who called herself our neighbor brought whatever she thought we would need. So, after everyone had eaten, I suggested they sort out their dishes and wash them, and in that way I saved all the work. We had everything done and were off to the dance by five o'clock. We went in sleds and sleighs, the snow was so deep, but it was all so jolly. Zebby, Mr. Stewart, Jereen, and I went in the bobsled. We jogged along at a comfortable pace, lest the beasties should suffer, and every now and then a merry party would fly past us, scattering snow in our faces and yelling like Comanches. We had a lovely moon then, and the snow was so beautiful. We were driving northward, and to the south and back of us were the great, somber, pine-clad Uinta Mountains, while ahead and on every side were the bare buttes, looking like old men of the mountains, so old they had lost all their hair, beard, and teeth. Rupert did not close this letter with a signature. December 28, 1909 Dear Mrs. Coney, Our Thanksgiving affair was the most enjoyable happening I can remember for a long time. Zebulon Pike came out, but I had as a bait for him two fat letters from home. As soon as I came back from his place, I wrote to Mrs. Carter and trusted to luck for my letter to reach her. I told her all I could about her brother and how seldom he left his mountain home. I asked her to write him all she could in one letter, as the trips between our place and his were so few and far between. So, when she received my letter, she wrote all she could think of, and then sent her letter and mine to Muffy and Phoebe, who are widows living in the, in the old home. They each took turns writing, so their letters are a complete record of the years Zebby has been gone. The letters were addressed to me, along with a cordial letter from Mrs. Carter, asking me to see that he got them, and to use my judgment in the delivering. I couldn't go myself, but I wanted to read the letters to him and write the answers, so I selected one piece of news I felt would bring him to hear the rest, without his knowing how much there was for him. Well, the boys brought him, and a more delighted little man I am sure never lived. I read the letters over and over, and answers were hurried off. He was dreadfully homesick, but couldn't figure out how to leave the critters, or how he could trust himself on a train. Mr. Stewart became interested, and he is a very resourceful man, so an old Frenchman was found who had no home and wanted a place to stay so he could trap. He was installed at Zebulon Pikes with full instructions as to each critter's peculiarities and needs. Then one of the boys, who was going home for Christmas to Memphis, was induced to wait for Mr. Parker and see him safe to Little Rock. His money was banked for him, and Mr. Stewart saw that he was properly clothed and made comfortable for the trip. Then he sent a telegram to Judge Carter, who met Zebulon Pike at Little Rock, and they had a family reunion in Yell County. I have had some charming letters from there, but that only proves what I have always said, that I am the luckiest woman in finding really lovely people and having really happy experiences. Good things are constantly happening to me. I wish I could tell you about my happy Christmas, but one of my New Year's resolutions was to stop loading you down with 2,000 word letters. From something you wrote, I think I must have written boastingly to you at some time. I have certainly not intended to, and you must please forgive me and remember how ignorant I am and how hard it is for me to express myself properly. I felt after I had written to Mr. Parker's people that I had taken a liberty, 
But luckily, it was not thought of in that way by them. If you only knew how far short I fall of my own hopes, you would know I could never boast. Why, it keeps me busy making over mistakes just like someone using old clothes. I get myself all ready to enjoy a success and find that I have to fit a failure. But one consolation is that I generally have plenty of material to cut generously, and many of my failures have proved to be real blessings. I hope this new year may bring to you the desire of your heart and all that those who love you best most wish for you. With lots and lots of love from Baby and myself, your ex-wash lady, Eleanor Rupert. The letters of Eleanor Pruitt Rupert are in the public domain. The music for American Epistles is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com. Click support to become a monthly contributor via Patreon. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>